Thank you and good morning. And I don't normally do this because I'm always afraid that I'm going to miss somebody, but there's a lot of new people here today. Duke, Susan, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. Josiah, Isaiah was here Wednesday, but he's back. Aiden, my cousin Megan is here from Alaska. She's a student like these other fellows here. And a very special guest, Josh, welcome. Josh Buttram, if you don't know. And one really, really special first-timer. I don't know where he went, but Ezra is here today. So if you haven't got to see him yet, he's a gem. And um, just talking with Jason Friday evening at the Moors uh, for the Helen Living Library, um, I didn't know that Hannah was going to be there with, with Ezra. I got to see him Friday night, some of us who were there. Got to see him Friday night, but um, but such has been the experience from Eden. That one leaves us, and one joins us. And thankful for Ezra this morning. So, in case you haven't uh, figured it out yet or haven't got the details. Linda, our dear, dear friend and sister, went to be with her Savior Friday evening. And um, just so you know, arrangements are being made. We are going to be having a uh, service at Daniel's Bible Church on Thursday. Time is to be determined at this point. And then uh, funeral and uh, graveside in Robbinsville, North Carolina, where um, Kim is buried. And for those of you visiting or new, Kim was uh, one of our elders here, and uh, he was hit by a car in 2012 and passed away in 2017, and, and now uh, Linda has been re- reunited with him as well. So, if you will, stand with me now for the reading of our scripture for today. From the book of James, chapter 1. And I'm going to read this whole chapter, so I'm going to try to move a little quicker than normal. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers in the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his created creatures. 
Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Thank you. You may be seated. I must add just a word or two to Josh and Jody and others. What a parade of friends came to show respects to Linda. That alone is a legacy. Kim and Linda, and you can't say Kim without saying Linda. You can't say Linda without saying Kim and Linda. And what a blessing they've been to my family, especially when we were across the waters in Africa, Puerto Rico, what a role they played in the lives of our children. So as we begin to quickly, uh, you know, obviously we can't treat all 26 verses like it could be done, might be done, but that'll have to come later when we break up the book a little better. But as we do begin to see the beginnings, at least, of James chapter 1, I invite you to pray with me. Father, I'm thankful that we got this place. We have these people. We have this time. We have this opportunity that you provided. Help us, Lord, to honor you in it. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish your will, not because of any of us, but in spite of us. Help us, Lord, to be careful to cover your word in a way that's pleasing to you and good for us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I have fear. Now, some of you know that how old I am. I'm now a few years old. And, uh, uh, I don't think as well as I used to. And really, if you know me, you probably think I didn't think all that well years ago either. Uh, but more and more, as I approach this pulpit and the opportunity, I'm more fearful than I used to be. And through James, we're going to see that, you know, it's a tough matter. To, to purport to speak God's words before other people. I want to share a purpose in my life, and I don't know if we had the verse uh, from 1 Corinthians 2. It says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I have found in my study, in my testimonies in the world, 
and I'm ashamed, anxious to admit it, but ashamed because I, maybe it'll help you. I don't put enough cross in my speech. I, I appreciated so much our communion portion with Todd and stressing that he's made into us wisdom. Uh, Jesus is. Jesus on the cross too. We need to preach the cross of Christ to people. Uh, years ago, with a relative of mine, a dear loved one, I had a disagreement. Minor disagreement about a major thing. Because the person I'm alluding to thought there was just too much doctrine being preached. And Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I thought to myself, Paul? He never knew anything else but the cross? Obviously, that's not literally true. But yet, everything that Paul did teach doctrinally, I mean, read chapter 8, chapter 9, and you'll know he did more than just talk about the crucifixion. But it was all based upon the, the uh, reward, the effects of the cross of Calvary. Verse 1. James, a servant, literally a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion or scattered abroad, which is what that means. That's, I'm from Wayne County and we'd say scattered abroad because we never heard of dispersion before. We thought dispersion was when they gave the commodity cheese. <laughs> There's some controversy that most of us have probably heard about the difference between Paul's words and James's words. And, and later, even next week, I believe we'll begin to see how grace and works, how the sense is made of, the sense in which works make a, a difference. But it's apparent that the conflict between James and Paul must have been pretty well satisfied when Paul went to the Jerusalem Council and got the thumbs up from James, I think they could probably agreed. I think they both meant the same thing about saving faith and demonstrations of that through works. You'll get that. But my plan this morning, and I, I realize I must go quickly because Jason has spoiled you. Uh, I want to just take a survey of first chapter by saying who the writer is, who the letter is to, and more importantly for us, what does it mean to us? I mean, what does the Bible mean? Therefore, we can determine what it means to us. The author of the book, James, it's practically certain that this is James, the brother of our Lord, and I won't go into all the details because I didn't write them down, but I don't think it's... I think it's universally accepted that this is the James we're talking about. The James who didn't at first believe in his half-brother, Jesus, along with his other family, apparently, didn't recognize Jesus uh, being God, the Messiah. But he became the principal leader of the church, the early church, the church in Jerusalem. The James who moderated that assembly in Acts 15. That we've all alluded to. 
that gave the blessing to the Apostle Paul, the James who commended the Apostle Paul's ministry. James was a lot like his brother Jude. Remember, James, or Jason did a really great job, as he wants to do, as he usually does. But just explaining how Jude didn't claim any special relationship to Jesus because he rather he said he was a servant of Christ and brother of James. That's pretty that's royalty, isn't it? Both of these brothers of Jesus claim to be servants, and this James here calls himself literally the slave of Christ. But yet he was his brother and apparently the oldest brother uh, that we know about. Sinclair Ferguson, in a message that I read, had a lot to say about the parent fam family of James and his brothers. At least nine in the family, because he had, what, three brothers? Four brothers, two sisters. You got James, Jude, Joseph, and Simon. Those are named. And he had at least two sisters. So, wonder what it was like to grow up in a family where Jesus was your sibling, albeit half-brother, but that's a brother, isn't it? Um, must it must be enough to conclude that this James, who is the spokesman for the apostles and elders, who Paul in Galatians said this about the council and referring to the apostles and elders, he said, those who seem to be pillars. Amazing. This James said, you know, Paul said, I went up there to Jerusalem to get the okay from these guys. Not that I needed their okay because I had the Spirit. We've read it all before. and But we went to them because they seemed to be pillars. They were important. They were the, the foundation of the new Christian church. James, who needed no other title, to be recognized. Everybody, just James, that was good enough. Everybody, the hearers that were dispersed, the Jews scattered, would know. Somebody that says, James, they know which James. This James called himself slave of Christ. Not little brother, or some, some exegetes believe he may have been a cousin, but it doesn't seem like it to me. I think he's his brother. But either way, he didn't claim that kind of kinship. He claimed that he was a slave. Speaks us a lot. Speaks a lot to us about him. Who was it written to? Believing Jews. It's a Jew book. There's no salvation doctrine in this book. But it's more about living a Christian life, not becoming a Christian. That's not the issue. And next chapter we'll see that they were called Christ followers. Fundamental principle of the Bible is we study first to see what it meant to the people it was written to, and then afterward see how that applies to you and I where we live. These Jews had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and were initially persecuted by the Jewish family, not just the Romans, or not just the other dispersions in the Babylon or Persia, but now it was a Jewish problem. You know, before the uh, before Acts was finished, when the 
us Gentiles came into the church. They were already shunned socially by the Gentiles, put out of the synagogue by the Jews, and they were apparently, here James is responding to some of the general uh, problems of the dispersion. The Jews, and this is, I borrow this from John Stevenson, the PCA pastor. He said, the Jews held to a prosperity theology that taught wealth as a sign of God's favor. Well, we got a lot of people like that today. They had a lack of commitment. They were prideful. There was strife within the church. They were material. Uh, the Roman Empire was at the peak of its wealth. Many of the Christians were failing to the prosperity test. I think that's true of us as well. They were engaged in the details that accompany wealth. I get that sometimes. I'm so wealthy sometimes I stumble because I forget that this thing, we can't take this with us. You've heard me say many times, we should be thankful for material blessings. And we are. But as we'll see later in James, I hold on to them with an open hand because they're not guaranteed. So what about us? The message to me from James is this. Trials are not unusual. Trials are inevitable. And we've heard Jason recently say words to that effect. It's not a surprise that we have trials. It's guaranteed that we will have trials. And I think that goes for believers and unbelievers as well. But the test is, well, how do we respond to trials? Alistair Begg says this, the emphasis in this letter of James is not upon becoming Christians, but it's rather on behaving as Christians. And it's very, very important that those of us who would profess to be Christians would face up to these particular and pressing challenges, and they are challenging. I have read ahead, and I know. Well, you've read ahead too, and James, and you know. It's not about the doctrine of salvation, but the doctrine of godly living. How do we respond to the trials that are inevitable? I like the phrase that I've heard first from a dear friend who was, a, who was doubtful about someone's claims. I had a lot of talk. He used to say, they got big hat, but no cattle. And I think that that applies to me sometimes. And maybe, if you'll allow me to prevail upon you for a few minutes, it may pertain to you as well. We all probably remember James' declaration regarding faith and works. And later you'll hear specifically about that. When I read this book, I see myself rebuked and challenged. Do you? I'm a gracer. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I don't believe we decide to be Christian. But God makes us alive. It allows us to believe. Dead people don't make decisions. God made us alive. He gets the glory. I believe and rejoice in the grace given to me an undeserving sinner. But I find I too often drift along without living in the strength of that grace or forgetting the cross. Pastor for so many years, a man who married Barbara and I, used to say, 
us four no more. Meaning just him and his wife and two children. And forget about our testimony in the world. And I believe in this grace that's free, but sometimes I don't live in the strength of that grace. I'm familiar with Bible talk. I haven't talked Bible talk with any of you. I may not remember all the chapters and verses like you young people can, but I know the lingo. I know the language. I say I love people, but I often don't really inconvenience myself to care for anybody else. Because I got a big hat, but no cattle. For instance, I know it's better to give than to receive, but I've often shut up those bowels of compassion and just kind of disregarded or failed to acknowledge the needs of someone else. I know Romans 8.28 and other promises here in the Bible, and it's a wonderful truth, isn't it? But I still feel put upon by the testing that life gives me. It's not fair. Now you may not have said that, but I bet you thought it. I have. And to my shame, I think that when this we know what God's going to do for us and in us. In the meantime, I don't like all these troubles. Can you remember when we were before we went to South Africa the first time, my dear neighbors lady said to me, she said, hand me down. You know that if the Lord wanted you to be a missionary in Africa, you wouldn't have all these troubles you had. And I thought, well, if that poor dude that was carried to the door and he couldn't get in and they took the roof apart and set him down, I think he would probably, if it had been like you, said, he would say, well, the Lord don't need you in Africa. It must not be His will. But sometimes we need to take the roof off, don't we? But all the time, we need to realize that there is a Christian response to trials. James seems to shout back at me what I've shared with you before. He says, Don, what you say you do is not what you do. What you do is what you do. Verse 2-4 through say this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's another you know. We know. I mean, this is a message to people's Jews scattered, but it's a message to me, that I also should count it joy, the various trials. Whoa, count it all joy. What makes good preaching? But it's not, difficult, not really easy to live, is it? But you know, Josh, I love you. I love your family. I mean, you're a special family. But if your faith doesn't work now, it's no good. This is a test. A guarantee and you pass it. I know that your mom has passed that test. Alistair Begg again says, to consider it 
unalloyed joy, pure joy, when you face trials of various kinds. It's unalloyed joy. It's complete joy that we should make it. Romans 8.28, which we want to quote often, does not say all things are good. It says all things together, working together, are good for us. I often talk to other veterans. Steve could agree with this. My, my time in the military certainly wasn't all good. But it was all for good. I'm benefited in the long run by it. James here in chapter 1 doesn't say all trials are joyful. You're really going to enjoy these trials that are inevitable. I can remember preaching the first time. You thought this was my first time, but really, I preached the first message a long time ago. Now I'm usually old. Then I was 18. I don't mind giving that age. And from John 16, I preached, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Well, you talk about a loser message. That was a loser message. But it, it, it learned me something. Even as a high school senior, I recognized, recognized that life was an uneven journey. All you folks, from the youngest, from preteens and teens and college students, and that's old grandparents. Uh, we know that life's full of trials. I had still much to learn at 18. There are more trials than I even imagined. Today, still, I must retool my perspective on trials. And perhaps you do too. I know how to talk the talk, but sometimes I fail to walk the walk. There's a recurring theme, and perhaps you've seen it in recent days here. Hebrews 2 verse 18 says, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. I don't know if you have noticed there's a recurring theme embedded within the book of Hebrews. It's a lot like James. Or James may be helpful in... I guess Hebrews, I think James is probably older, but the themes are very similar. I realize, as you do, that scriptures offer declarations of concerning trials, suffering, enduring pain, and such portions in other books than just James. Classic example, of course, Job. Second Chronicles, we read that God left Hezekiah to himself to try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. Don't you reckon the Lord know what was in his heart? But Hezekiah may not have. And the Lord left him to the point where he could reveal to himself what was in his heart. And the same we read in the 23rd Psalm. There's a valley of the shadow of death. Fear no evil. Boy, does it, we need to grasp that because it's a lot easier to say than it is to do. There's New Testament examples that are specific that I want to share. The Apostle Paul. He might be, along with James, the champion of, hey, you're going to have trouble. He says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ 
you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. And in 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, but shall be. So it's not just Paul, but there's good old St. Peter. We've seen a lot from him in First and Second Peter recently. Uh, he reminds us that the trials are coming. Don't think of something strange because it's expected the trials that will come. In First Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for good do, doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And yet, in chapter 4, he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. i got two points to make this morning. One is, you don't need, you don't need me to inform you that troubles lie ahead. Like Alistair Begg, you've read ahead. We know there's trials in the future. What remains is, what do we do with this knowledge? With our knowledge that troubles are in the future, how are we going to react? And the second point is, what's the purpose of our testing? Or how are we going to act? Here's a quick jet tour, and it will be quick and not develop deeply. In verse 5, through 8, we begin an explanation of, and I believe I'm accurate to say, all these pertain to trials. In other words, James says, count it all joy when you suffer. And if you lack wisdom, verse 5 through 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Sounds like another guarantee, doesn't it? You ask and you will receive. But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Literally, two-souled man. Two minds. I used to say often that I think I'm undecided, but I'm not sure. That's probably the description of being double-minded. I've been that way in my life. Perhaps you have too. But remember, the context is, you're going to have lots of trials. How are you going to act? How are you going to respond to these? Well, Here's one thing. If you lack wisdom, ask for it. Isn't that good? I mean, you don't have to say amen right there even if you don't do it out loud. That's wonderful to me because sometimes I don't know what to do, what to think. I, I know there's trials coming and I'm supposed to count it joy. And it doesn't seem like it to me. I think I'm going to get on my knees. 
when I ask for some wisdom. And I think the Lord provides wisdom in that way. But where does it come from, ultimately, the wisdom? It comes from the book. I mean, let's get the Word in us to find wisdom. And even then, I think we depend on the guidance of the Holy Spirit using His Word. Trials drive us to prayer. Ask, it shall be given. He gives liberally and upbraideth not. This is the way I've learned it. He won't make fun of you for asking, but He'll give you the wisdom. And I say, thank the Lord for that. And quickly, moving on, verses 9 through 11. And this is a hard piece for me. Let the lowly brother or poor brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perisheth. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I think trials are the common denominator for believers among rich and poor. Several years in Africa, in South Africa and Zimbabwe, maybe even more especially, we've seen a lot of poor folks. Poor folks by our standards, but some that are so rich in faith that I became jealous of them because I was a fat calf relatively speaking to many of these people. So James is saying, you poor people, boast. And you've been upgraded. You've got grace. You've got Christ. You have a future. And you rich people, in this case, I think we're the rich people. I'm, I'm thinking I am, relatively. Uh, I don't want to hang on to this like I, I have to have it because I'm going to die and leave it. All of us are. No matter what we have, no matter what these scattered believers, Jews, that had wealth, they could rejoice in the fact that they had something more important than wealth. And those that were poor could rejoice in the fact that they were far richer in riches that mattered than were those rich people who often uh, they were jealous of. In verse 12 through 15, we read this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Are you frustrated in your trial? Did you ask for wisdom? Did you rejoice in the fact that if you think you're poor, He's made you rich. If you're rich, you've become aware that there's something a lot more important than the stuff that you have, and you can exalt in that as well. Then if you come to the point where we pass the test, we're passing the test, and James writes, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It's a blessing. 
Now you're going to get to trial. You know it. But you're blessed if you're faithful during it. For when you have stood the test, you'll receive the crown of life or you'll receive life as a crown. Because God has promised to those who love Him. On the other hand, don't ever say, man, I'm tempted by God. Why would God let this happen? How could I? What's He doing to me? And yet, don't say it because God can't be tempted and He tempts no one. Well, it doesn't matter how it seems to you, thus says the Scripture. So what are we going to believe? The way we feel? The way the world thinks? That's not fair? A lot of bad things happen to good people? Well, bad things happen to all people. And we need to be the ones that react in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. I often say, I'm a football fan. Not a real happy one right now. <laughs> but I think in, in illustrations of football, and I've said this many times, and I don't mean to be irreverent, and I don't want to give the devil too much credit. But I think the problem with me is with me. To use the football, imagine, imagine that in football, I believe the devil covers me with a third-string linebacker. Because I don't need to defend me. I want to take care of myself. I'm going to fumble the ball more often than not because the problem is in me. And our Wednesday nights lately, men, have been really good. Uh, and Jason especially has pounded it into us. The problem is here. It's not the world out there. The problem is how are we going to react to what we see around us. Jesus was tempted in every point like we were, but we need to remember, uh, I'm quick to add, He was tempted apart from sin. Or I think the EVFC says, without sin. He didn't have any sin. Well, brethren and sisters, we got sin. So we don't handle temptation exactly like He does because we still got the flesh. We still got sin in our flesh. We have to, Todd, choose to believe Scripture, what it says, and just haul off and take our trials and rejoice in them and give God the glory. And again, that's a lot easier to say sometimes than it is to do. Verse 16 through 18 say, <clears throat> Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We'll pause right there. What in the world is he talking about? Well, I thought we were talking about trials. And here it says, don't, don't be deceived. Every gift's good. It all comes from the Father. I think I understand the grammar to say that trials come from Him. These are good things. Let's be tested to see who's genuine. To test our own genuineness. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Of His own will, He brought us 
through. How could we miss that? How could we think, look what me and Jesus did when Jesus saved us when we were dead in sin and brought us forth? How? By the word of truth. So why would we forsake it for man's wisdom? We shouldn't. We shouldn't. And remember, I believe the context is these trials are gifts too. And they're all good to gifts. And let me go from there to verse 19. Know this. I think we can attach the word of truth to, to know this. My beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. I think back to a football example. Uh, you know, you have receivers and you have passers. And the passer passes the ball and that's real good. That's part of the equation. But somebody has to receive it also. It doesn't matter how good your passing is if that guy's got brick hands on the other end and he doesn't catch anything, you don't get the first down. Uh, and that's not a recent example or anything. That's 50 some years ago. Uh, meekness. Receive with meekness. Just believe what God says about these things. Be quick to hear. Listen. Where do you listen? In the Scripture. You've got trials. Let's be careful about speaking, but quick about listening to the Word. Receive with meekness implanted Word. Meekness can be translated teachableness. Receive it. Be teachable. Let the Word of God teach you. And on verse 22 and 25, we want, don't want to forget the mirror when we're looking into that law of liberty. But do be, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Practical Christianity. What you say you do is not what you do. What you do is what you do. And what you do proves your gen genuineness of your faith. And lastly, what we all remember, not just what you say you do, Verses, the last two verses say, if anyone thinks, I love that word, think. We did, I think we need to do that more. Let's think. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. What you say you do. Verse 27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. From the world. What you should do, what we should do, the pure religion, the example of the genuineness of our faith is visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep ourselves unstained from the Word. I reckon our behavior matters. The way we think matters. It's not a matter of the things we got to do in order to be accepted by God. He makes dead people alive. But those that are made alive react certain ways and therefore justifies themselves or proves the genuineness of their faith. Each of these issues, and I know it's a quick run through, uh, may be considered under one heading, the application of handling trials and temptation. How, how are we going to do it? Quickly, we're just going to think for a minute. It might, might speak a little extemporaneously here, although I'm fearful. Uh, we're instructed to rejoice in suffering. Can there be any doubt that God says rejoice when you suffer? I mean, there's no question. I don't always like it, but I certainly must admit that it's clearly presented in the Scripture. We will. We have every reason to obey the command to count it all joy. We know that. So why don't we just do it, people? You and me, all of us. But can we actually see the real advantages to us? We know what we've been instructed to do. We have reason to count it joy like he says because he said it. But can we actually agree with God that this is an advantage to us? That's a little more difficult sometimes for us. Do you need an example? Let me give you an example. How about Jesus? The author and finisher of our faith. And reading from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. So I see this and I'm thinking, Jesus, the God-man, the one that spoke the world into existence, he had a, a, a view of future which helped him to suffer in the present knowing what he had to look forward to. I reckon I can do that. I think it takes personal discipline to remember to do that. By the way, this endurance is a real neat word that I wrote down because I like to say it. Jason's not the only one that does that. Huponome. <laughs> Some of you students may be Greek scholars. I was, Barbara and I both were Greek scholars. We took Greek twice. Introduction to Greek twice. Withdrew once and got a C once. Uh, so, I know if you, I still remember a little bit of uh, Greek. 
But the, the word is, and here's steadfastness. Uh, Jeremiah is told, if you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? Thomas Manton, by way of John MacArthur, said, Steve, you'll verify this. The worth of a soldier is never known in peacetime. We train for things, don't we? But for the joy that's set before us, we endure. Jesus endured the cross in despising the shame. I'd, I'd like to say that's true of me. I'm afraid too often it isn't. Concentrating just for a minute on verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, King James said. New American Standard says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And our translation says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Upaname. Endurance. Constancy. Patient continuance. Let's just keep going. That's the point altogether. So, the point of continuing, of looking for the future, enduring the problem, is that this is a very good thing. And it takes time. You don't get there one day. Verse 4 says, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Oh, say, are we interested in behavior modification? Jason's all tell us to try harder and do better. <laughs> no, he isn't. He's reminding us that's not what we're after. Colossians chapter 2. If with Christ you died to the element elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the Bible and to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And grin and bear. Be a stoic. It works after a fashion, and it shows a willingness, and the word sees that as religion, but it doesn't take away your sin away. It doesn't stop you from your lustful passions. Second Corinthians 4. Well, Hebrews 12, 1 again. 12, 11, right? For, moment, for, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, no value in gritting your teeth. Yes value in being trained or exercised by our problems that are discipline. So we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. Day by day, Colossians 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
we've been invited into the fellowship of his suffering. For I consider Romans 8.18, the suffering of this present time are not worthy, worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So lastly, we don't want stoicism. We don't want try harder to do better. We don't want behavior modification. But we do want training in righteousness. And the application of our necessary trials take place over time. You don't just have an all-night prayer meeting. You're okay now. No, it's steady, progressive sanctification in our life. Thomas Watson says, "Are you after you've suffered a while?" Peter says, or as it is in the Greek, after you've suffered a little. Thomas Watson says, "Our sufferings may be lasting, but they're not everlasting." That's good news. About done. I appreciate your patience. If you remember the beginning of our message from 2 Corinthians 2, we read these words from Paul. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty, lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Imagine this. It is probable that had Moses, when he came to invite Israel to leave and go to Canaan, if he found them in prosperity, that they would have been very willing to move out of Egypt. But the afflictions they were in made his message welcome. Yeah, Moses, we'll go with you. We don't like this circumstance. Will your problems and my problems, my trials, drive me to act right, to trust God, to seek wisdom, to seek the Word, to look beyond it to the joy that's set before us? All of these things. The Bible expects the Christian to rejoice in their suffering because of the benefit it provides to us, to others, and the glory it describes to God. I'm leaving you really quickly three B's. I know you'd be disappointed if we didn't at least have some kind of application. And this is really brief, but listen to me. The reasons that we joy in our tribulation, all different kinds, is... There's a benefit to us. It is good for us, even though it doesn't seem like it at the time. Afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised by it. We know that. Secondly, the second thing, it benefits us, number one. Two, it benefits others. People, I can remember when Barbara's mom was in her last few months at our home before she went to heaven. And, that, and she got to, to the point where she was, Don, I'm sorry, this is so much trouble. I said, Mary, I love you. We don't mind. We'll serve you however we can. She said, well, hey. I said, but Mary, look. All my kids are watching, and I'm next. <laughs> so there's a benefit to us and to others that we endure temptations, that we remain steadfast. 
And lastly, brings glory to God. Me going along happily down the trail with no problems might not bring glory to God. But me suffering well, not being angry at God, but rather receiving with meekness the engrafted word, that brings glory. Again, Josh, Jody, what an example your parents were. I mean, what a way to leave this world. Anybody that had any contact with them would say, those are Christian people. I want to be like that, don't you? If you will, stand. I'll offer you a benediction as we leave. Remember, trials and completing them benefit us, benefit others, and bring glory to God. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And all God's people said. Amen. Alright, stay and eat with us if you can. You're welcome.